Uh, this morning, we want to jump into uh, the passage uh, that we're going to teach from today. We're going to be in Luke chapter number four, and we're going to read verses 31 through 44. Luke chapter number four. We'll begin reading in the 31st verse. Once you have it, you can let me know by saying amen. And the scripture declares, and when he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching. Uh oh. Siri tried to jump in the sermon again. <laughs> and they were astonished at his teaching and at his word, and that his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of, unclean, of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in, the, in their midst, he came out of him, having done, no, done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the, in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any, um, who, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Uh, just for a few moments, I want to share from a very simple subject title. I want to talk about kingdom authority. This morning, we want to preach on kingdom authority. Let me pray for us. Father, we are, we are so thankful um, that you give us uh, the privilege and the opportunity uh, to be able to open up your word. Uh, God, I know that with a room of this size, we have some folks who are in a good place. We have some folks who are in a dark place. We've had some folks who had a rough week, uh, some folks who had a great week. God, no matter where we are, God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you will give us a tailor-fit word that would speak to wherever we are. God, you would allow us, God, to hear from your word. And we pray, God, that your word would transform our lives. God, we thank you that what we are most in need of is not of, of a performance or what we are most in need of is not from hearing from a man. God, but what we are most in need of is hearing from you. And I thank you, God, that you promise us that when your word is preached, your voice is heard. God, so I pray even now that you would empower me to preach your word, to speak truth. Fill me with your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, over the last few messages, we have had a, a wonderful opportunity to focus on the life 
and the ministry of Jesus. If you go back to chapter number three, the passage begins by shining the light on Christ. And in shining the light on Christ, we see something significant about the life and ministry of Christ. If you go back to chapter number three, you will very clearly see that the passage reveals the character of Jesus' ministry. As the passage continues, you will also see that the passage reveals the identity of Jesus. As the passage continues, then you will see the, not only the, um, the identity of Jesus, but then you see the consistency of Jesus. But in the verses that we read today, now we begin to see the actual authority of Jesus. We see the ministry of Jesus. We see the consistency of Jesus. We see the identity of Jesus. And now, clearly, we see the authority of Jesus. Authority is something that we oftentimes struggle with because we live in a day and time that is marked by a democratic format. We live in a democracy. Uh, oftentimes we think uh, that authority is something uh, that comes from man. We think uh, we easily confuse uh, authority with things that is not. Authority is not about having the most votes. Authority is not having the most numbers. Authority is not being the biggest or the baddest. Authority is not even given in a title. But authority causes us to ask the question, who has the right to rule? Authority answers the question, who has the right to govern life? Who has the right to officiate life? Who has the right to determine what is right and to, de and to determine what is wrong? Who has the right to determine what we should do and what we should not do. Uh, last night we played um, in the SEC championship game. Um, don't do that. <laughs> if your greatest athletic accomplishment came in middle school, be quiet. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Last night <laughs> we played in the SEC championship game. And there was a group or a specific person on the field with authority. The person on the field was not the biggest person. The, first on the, the person on the field with the most authority was not the largest person, wasn't the person with the most money. The person on the field who had the most authority was not the baddest, the biggest. It was not the person who had the biggest squat. It was not the person who had the best 40 time. The person who had authority on the field was the head ref. Specifically, the head ref was sent from Birmingham. The game was in Atlanta. The officials were appointed by the SEC office in Birmingham, and they were sent to give authority and rule over the game. They were sent to govern the game. They were sent to, 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 to recognize and identify what was right and what was wrong, to bring order to the game. If we can understand what happened in the game last night, how much more should we be able to understand the authority that Jesus is modeling for us? Jesus leaves heaven and brings authority to the earth. Jesus comes from heaven and brings authority from the Father. Just as the officials came from Birmingham and officiated something in Atlanta, Jesus came from heaven and he officiates something on the earth. Jesus certainly came to die. Jesus certainly came to die for your sins in your place. Jesus certainly came to serve. He certainly came uh, to be an example of what it means to be uh, a loving, uh, caring Christian. He does all of that. But I want you to hear me very clearly. Jesus came to love. He came to serve. He came to model. But Jesus also came to rule your life. That's part of the, Jesus, that's the, part of the gospel we, want, we don't want to talk about. We want to talk about Jesus as our Savior. And he is a wonderful Savior. 
But the scripture also is very clear that Jesus is our Lord. And it is the lordship of Jesus that many of us have issues with. We have no problem with the one who dies on the cross. We have no problem with the forgiveness of sins. We have no issues with our sin debt being canceled. But here's our issue. Here's my issue. Does he have a right to rule? Is he the Lord of my life? Is he responsible for making decisions or am I responsible for making the decisions? And in the text, the scripture tells us very clearly that Jesus does not simply come to die, but Jesus actually comes to rule. We need to hear that. We need to accept that. We need to wrestle with, is Jesus not just the savior of my life, but he's, he, is he also the Lord of my life? Because catch this, can't have one without the other. Can't have the savior without the Lord. We want to we separate him. We want to accept one part and not accept the other. But the text tells us very clearly that he is our Savior. But the text also tells us very clearly that he is our Lord. When, when we look at the text, we see very clearly that Jesus came with heavenly authority. And in his heavenly authority, he reveals it in three specific ways. First, we see uh, authority in what he communicated. Authority in what he communicated. Verse 31 says again, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Uh, to truly appreciate what Jesus is doing in Capernaum, we need to reflect on what just happened and what took place in Nazareth. In the previous section, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath, but the people from his hometown said that his teaching was not enough. The people from Nazareth concluded that this is just uh, Mary's son. This is just Joseph's baby boy. And they concluded that for them to believe, they needed Jesus to do a sign. For them to believe, they needed Jesus to do a miracle. Essentially, they are saying, for us to place our trust in you, you must first perform for us. That is what we do each and every day in our lives. Many of us, many of us struggle with wanting God to perform for me. We struggle with connecting what God does and connecting with God, how God answers my prayers with how much God loves me and how God, how God is faithful to me. If God was bound by my prayers, if God was bound by my requests, if God was bound by what I wanted, it would make me God and him not God. I've got to accept that the Lord is in control and that the Lord is the one who has the right to do whatever he desires to do. In the text, the people concluded that for us to believe, we have to see a sign. We have to see a miracle. And Jesus does the opposite. Jesus says, faith in me, catch this, is dependent upon my word. Faith in me is connected to trusting what I have already said. And a lot of us today need to wrestle with that truth. Do we trust what God has said? It's easy for us to get to this place of thinking that if God just worked a miracle, if God just answered the prayer, if God just showed up in a tangible way, then, then people would believe. But the text is communicating to us the way people believe is by trusting in God's word. The way you and I believe is in trusting in God's word. Those who are not believing right now, uh, the reason why they will believe is not because of, of the miracle or the, of the performance. It is because they get to a place in their life where they are willing to trust God's word. So the question is, as we, as we start off today, do we trust him at his word? Do we trust what he has said? Like when, when the scripture says, 
Christ will bring salvation to all the nations, do we trust his word? When Christ said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men and women to myself. Do we trust his word? When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, do we trust his word? In the text, instead of trusting Jesus and glorifying Jesus, the people literally try to get rid of Jesus. Verse 29 says again, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow, to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. In verse 29, it tells us that that they literally wanted to get rid of Jesus. They literally wanted to kill Jesus. So it's understandable that in verse number 31, Jesus stops teaching. I mean, since they didn't, it didn't work in 29, it's okay that Jesus quit in verse 31. It's okay that he called audible in thir- verse 31. It's okay that he stopped preaching the word in verse n- number 31 because in 29, he had, he had some issues. Of course, I'm being facetious when I say that. Verse 29 and the difficulty and the issues that he faced did not, did not cause him to change what he, he was called to do in verse number 31. When you go back to the passage, you'll see that um, Luke chapter number 4 is a prophetic uh, fulfillment of Isaiah 61, where the, the Messiah is promised and foretold to be one who would preach and teach the word. And just because things got rough in verse 29, he did not have an excuse to change the game in verse number 31. Too many of us believe that when things are hard, things must be wrong. Too many of us, we believe that lie, that if things get rough, if if opposition is in front of me, that if if times are, are difficult, then something must be wrong. Just because Jesus faced a fierce opposition in verse 29, it did not give him a green light to change things up in verse number 31. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution, Jesus goes back to to his identity. He focuses on who he was and what he was called to do. In this life, I want to say this very clearly, you will face many days like verse 29. You will face days where it is hard to do what God has called you to do. You will face days when you have opposition and when things get rough. And I want to encourage you in those moments not to quit. Not to give up, not to change the plan, not to believe that God has forgotten about you, but I want you to hear me clearly. There will be days where you and I, uh, where it's going to be super hard to do what God's called us to do, but we've got to go back to our identity. In the text, Jesus is doing exactly what he is called to do, and it's hard. And there are going to be days where you are doing exactly what God's called you to do, and it's going to be hard. There are going to be some days where it's really hard to get up and pray. I know we want to believe this this lie that if you just love the Lord, you're going to just wake up and you're going to just be praying in the spirit. You're going to just be speaking those things that are not as if they were and everything's going to be great. I know that you believe that, you know, if you just really get full of the spirit, that you're going to always want to have a quiet time. You want to always spend time with God's word. You want to always come to church. You want to always serve. You want to always have family devotion. But the truth of the matter is, there are going to be some days where you do not want to do that. And in those days, we can't change the game. In those days, we cannot change the script. When it's hard for me to love my wife like Christ loved the church, I cannot change the script. 
when my kids are getting on my nerves and I want to go off on them and I want to flip a table over, I cannot change the game. When things at work are getting out of control, when, 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 the, when my professor is acting a fool at the end of the semester, I cannot change the game. I've got to go back to do what God has called me to do. In the text, Jesus faces a hard moment. He has victory in the desert. He has victory in verse 14. Um, he has victory in verse, he has, he faces adversity in verse 29, but catch this, he's willing to follow the Father's way, and he's willing to do what the Lord has called him to do, and he, in, in, in doing so, we see he has divine authority. His authority comes from the teaching of the word. The people were astonished. They were, they were flabbergasted. They were taken aback by how he taught the word. The way he taught was not in an arrogant way or a prideful way, but it was in boldness and in confidence because, catch this, he was following God's divine plan for his life. He was following the Father's plan. I want to say a word here about our authority today. As believers and as a church, for us to have authority today, our authority is always connected to what God has said in his word. The authority that we have today is not connected to the pastor or our political affiliation or our personal opinions. If the church is to have authority today, the church must rely on what God has already said in his word. That's why Paul charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Catch this rightly handling the word of truth. A few paragraphs later in 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Our culture does not want to rely on God's word because our culture does not want to be accountable. But for us to have authority, for us to have divine authority and what we communicate, what we, what we communicate must be connected to what God has already said in his word. So first we see authority in what he communicated, but second we see authority in who he confronted. Verse 33 says, uh, and in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in, the, in their midst, he came out, having done him no harm. Uh, we need to consider the passage very carefully because there is a, there's really a certain level of irony here in the text. It's ironic because... Um, Usually, we don't expect the devil or a demon uh, to be present in church or synagogue, right? Especially the days we live in, Hollywood has us thinking that demons are found in graveyards or dark forests or scary movies. Uh, uh, Satan wants us to focus on those who are dead, but Satan really attacks those who are living. In the text, Satan took a man and took him to church. And as I was preparing my sermon this morning, it made sense to me why some of y'all act the way y'all do. <laughs> Notice I'm not laughing. <laughs> I'm serious. We need to understand that even in the midst of the church, 
even in the midst of the fellowship, that Satan desires to distract from God's word, that Satan desires to distract from God's plan. We need to understand that Satan uh, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the primary place of Satan in the church is to kill, steal, and destroy fellowship. It is to kill the body. It is, just, it is to destroy the community of the believers. I want you to catch the scene here. In the synagogue, uh, the, the, the man is in church. He's screaming. He's being disruptive. He's distracting from the teaching. He's pulling people away from what Christ wants to say. Does that not happen in church today? Does that not happen often in church today where we see things that pull our attention away from the message? Not from the messenger. I don't care about y'all listening to me. I want you to listen to what God has to say. This is not me preaching about y'all need to listen to the pastor more. This is what in your life is causing you to be distracted from what God is saying. And when you identify that, you will, do, you will be able to identify demonic activity in your life. In church today, when we argue about what songs should be sung, when we argue about things that are unessential, when we argue about personal preferences, when we argue about non-biblical traditions, when we argue about things that are, that are, that are non-essential, as if they are essential, we can rest assured that Satan is at work. When our focus and attention moves and shifts from God's word to the things of this world, to the things that are unessential, we know that Satan is distracting us. In the text, Jesus rebukes the spirit and the people are amazed. And when you think about it, a demon is simply a fallen angel that rebelled with Satan against God and was cast from, from heaven. Demons are committed to opposing God's rule and everything that God does. So in our midst, anything that opposes God's rule and opposes God's mission is demonic. We want to think about demonic activity as if it's uh, the devil with the pitchfork. Uh, the reality of it is demonic activity distracts from Christ and distracts from the mission of Christ. That's how we need to see it. So first, there's authority in what he communicated. There's authority in who he confronted. He confronted anything that distracted from Christ. He, he, he confronted anything that distracted from the message of God's word. And then lastly, we see authority in how he cared. Verse 38 says, and he, rose, and he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. In verse 38, Luke refers to a high fever, and he speaks with the concern of a physician. Uh, this is not a common cold or a flu bug. This is a woman who is down and out. In verse 38, when they ask, her about, when they ask him about the fever, they are appealing to Jesus to do something because he's the only one who could fix the issue. It's amazing to me that Jesus spoke to the fever and she was healed. Fevers do not have ears or minds. Fevers do not have feelings or opinions. But Jesus is able to speak to the issue. And Jesus and his power is able to heal her from her sickness. I love the passage because there's no fraud. There's no fluke. Just a faithful and compassionate savior who deeply cared for people. I want to say a word here, especially too, about discipleship, right? Jesus had called Peter to follow him. Jesus had called Peter um, to, to leave and abandon everything, right? 
And one of the first things that Jesus does is he goes to care for somebody he cared for. As we disciple, as we love on people, as we serve people, we've got to be willing to care for those people who people care for. Because in caring for his mother-in-law, Jesus showed true, true care and compassion for Peter. I love the passage because it tells us that she's healed, but catch this. Then it tells us that she began to serve. What God did for her led her to do things for others. In relationship, in our, our relationship with Christ should always compel us to deeper relationships with others. I truly believe this when the scripture says that the love of Christ compels us that should be a passage that really indicates the condition of our heart. When we are not compelled to serve, when we are not compelled to care for others, when we are not compelled to put others before ourselves, that is simply an indicator that I am missing the love of Christ in my life. The impact of the love of Christ that it had on her led her to do something for other people. And when I truly experience God's love, when I truly experience God's forgiveness, when I truly experience God's mercy, it makes me more loving. It makes me more forgiving. It makes me more merciful. It makes me more patient. It makes me more kind. It makes me more Christ-like. So the, the, here's the indicator. If that is not being worked out in my life, that's an indicator that I need to spend some time experiencing and appreciating the love of Christ over my life. Christ, Christ's love compels us. That's what the text says. It always moves us into action. It always moves us forward and it always helps us see what God has called us to do. Verse 40 continues and says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. He's not um, some vague healer. He's not um, having some uh, sham tent revival. Um, but people in the crowd had real issues, and Jesus was willing to deal with their issues. I want to say a word here, especially about just uh, faith healing and the faith healing movement. Right? I, I, I try my best not to bash preachers. I try my best not to, to call people out, per se. You catch me one-on-one, -on -one, I'll probably give you a little bit more, right? Um, <laughs> but this is online, and I want to be careful, right? Um, but I want to say something here, right? Shame on anyone. Shame on any pastor, any preacher, any prophet, any evangelist, any person who would take advantage and, and scheme and take advantage of people who are hurting. I remember growing up um, in Chattanooga, there was a Miss Bonds, phenomenal lady, phenomenal woman of God. Her husband had cancer, and I can remember Ms. Bonds would have, would have done anything to see her husband heal. I mean, anything. And I can remember going to her house. As a, as, I don't even think I was a believer at the time. I was probably 12 or 13. I remember the church we would go and we would bring meals. And I can remember all these different books. And, you know, I can remember seeing, you know, the prayer cloth and the miracle water. I can remember seeing all these things. And she tried to do all those things, and none of them worked. And I can remember when Mr. Bonds died. I can remember it. Like it was yesterday. Her faith was shaken. And it's almost as if she wanted to give up hope because she had placed her faith in what all these liars and connivers had told her. 
we've got to be to a place where we trust God and we speak the truth in faith and we believe God for big things. But anyone who, who lines their pocket and takes advantage of people who are hurting and sick, they are not from God. They, 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 that is not the spirit of God. God's spirit does not allow us to be in a position to where we are taking advantage of people who are hurting. God's spirit does not allow us to put ourselves in a position to where we are willing to line our pockets for personal profit at the expense of others. As the passage continues, it says in verse number 41, and the demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak because they were not, because they knew that he was the Christ. In the text, the people and the demons clearly, um, the people um, and their response uh, and the demons' response clearly identified or clearly illustrated that Christ was powerful. But it's amazing to me that the demons actually cried, you are the son of God. The demons identified who Jesus was. I just want to say a quick word here about this. My brothers and sisters, our faith is not about what's in our head. It's not about us having a whole bunch of head knowledge, right? But shame on us if demons have better theology than us. Like, we need to understand the truth. And we need to be able to identify the truth. In the text, Jesus says in verse number 43, uh, he said that I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I'll close with this. Jesus, this is the first time. We're going to talk about a lot more as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This is the first of 37 times in the Gospel of Luke where, where Jesus mentions the kingdom. The kingdom of God is simply the rule and the reign of Christ. It is the good news of God sending his son to die for our sins in our place and how a life should be lived now in response to that truth. When we think about it, wherever Christ went, wherever he went, it was about extending the kingdom. Wherever he did, whatever he did, it was about the kingdom. He had a kingdom mindset because he understood that God's desire is for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. When Jesus taught us to pray, what did he teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is giving us a model for what he will later teach us to pray, that our lives should be about building and establishing his kingdom more so than our own kingdom. Chris, you can come on up. I'm done now. Um, As we prepare for communion, I want to give us uh, three very uh, simple points of application and we'll be done today. Three very simple points of application. First of all, when we think about Uh, Jesus and how he responded, uh, how he responded even to a rough, uh, even how he responded to the rejection uh, that he faced in verse number 29, our prayer together is, may we rely on the Lord. When times get hard, don't change the play. When times get rough, please don't call audible. Just because things are hard does not mean you're doing the wrong thing, and just because catch this, people try to stop you and get rid of you, does not mean that the Lord has forsaken you. So first, may we we rely on the Lord. And then secondly, may we respond to the Lord. 
I love how my sister was healed. And in being healed, her healing led her to serve others. I really believe that it's okay to be blessed. Like, I want to be blessed. I, I pray that the Lord blesses me. Like, I want to I be blessed far greater than I am today. But as God blesses me, my prayer is I continuously seek to be a blessing to others. Like, as God blesses me, I want to respond by being more generous, more loving, more caring, and more supportive of others. So first, may we rely on the Lord. Secondly, may we respond to the Lord. And then lastly, may we rest in the Lord. Can I get the two guys who did, uh, who did offering to come on up? Resting in the Lord takes this mindset. Resting in the Lord says that I'm going to trust that God's kingdom. Thank you, my brother. I'm going to trust that God's kingdom is my priority. I'm going to trust that, that my life needs to be about extending that versus me trying to build my own thing.